Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Pope Francis says NATO started war in Ukraine by, quote, barking at Putin's door, end quote. I feel that before going to Kiev, I must go to Moscow, he told Correr della Sera in an interview yesterday. But the meeting would not actually be to condemn Putin based on what he told the paper. He said the real scandal of Putin's war is NATO barking at Russia's door, which he said caused the Kremlin to react badly and unleash the conflict. As much as folks want to ignore this, the Pope, I think, states a very powerful reality. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Schlaboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So the Pope repeated comments he's made in general audiences and in other interviews that the war is nothing more than a giant opportunity for a trade in arms that is and it is still ongoing because the constant shuttling of weapons to Ukraine. Uh, he's talked twice to uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, mostly urging him not to fight back. Uh, is this being reported in uh, in Moscow? How is this playing, Mark Sloboda? Uh, yeah, it's it, it is being reported. Um, it is uh, also being reported how much the Western media is trying to ignore or downplay it. There was even a piece out uh, in the Daily Beast today uh, by Barbie Latsa Nadio, correspondent at large, who uh, 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 this article is titled Under Conspiracy Theories. Pope Francis says NATO started war in Ukraine by, quote, barking at Putin's door. And then the subtitle, the pontiff declared, defended Putin and claimed without foundation that it was others who created the conflict, quote, unquote, in Ukraine. Um so, I mean, obviously, no one is more responsible for spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories about Russia's invasion of Ukraine than Pope Francis, because he is a well-known conspiracy monger. Uh, I, it, it's really kind of sad that they feel so necessary to defend the dominant narrative coming out of Western governance and media to even accuse the Pope of conspiracy theories when they bother to acknowledge that the Pope said this at all. Of course, the Pope's comments were nuanced. I mean, he did make a reference to uh, that, uh, you know, um, the Kremlin yeah, reacting badly and unleashing the conflict. Yeah, yeah. Others starting this. He he has uh, begged Russia to stop the war. Um, he said uh, NATO was barking at uh, Russia's door. But uh, he also commented on how the war has be is little more than a giant opportunity for a trade in arms and to test weaponry. Um, and he also had uh, criticism 
for the uh, patriarch of the or- Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, uh, saying that he fears he is becoming Putin's altar boy. Uh, 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 he made comments to him, brother, we are not state clerics. We cannot use the language of politics, etc. To be fair, the Orthodox churches uh, have always been much closer to the states that they have been a part of uh, than the Vatican, which was essentially its own empire uh, for for much of the dark in the Middle Ages. So a little bit of a difference uh, of, of opinion there on that. But uh, the Pope has nuanced comments, but even those, you know, uh, are are being touted as conspiracy theories in the Western media, and conspiracy theories being what almost everyone else in the world acknowledges is common sense. You know, it's like acknowledging that water is wet and ice is cold. You know, it is clearly obvious to anybody who has the most superficial knowledge of the dynamics that created this conflict that it was brought about by the um, NATO um, increasing its military presence on Russia's border. And what's interesting is it is so glaringly obvious that those who would try to what the Pope's the Pope's basically glaring grasp of the obvious is that the only weapon they have. I mean, I'm surprised the Disinformation Governance Board isn't out with a an anti-Pope white paper or something. But the only thing that they have is, oh gee, uh, would you believe conspiracy theory? I mean, they have to throw a term conspiracy theory out there because they have no actual data or no actual intellectual argument to posit against. I mean, it's the Pope, but it's just he stated the obvious mark. It gets even better because um, now the EU is talking about sanctioning the religious leader, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church for, I don't know, disagreeing with their narrative, conspiracy theories too. So the question is now, will the EU uh, sanction both largest <laughs> of the two heads of Christianity in the world for not being fully on board with, with their point of view. It's pretty insane because, I mean, if you're not labeling your opponent conspiracy theorists, then sanctioning them in an attempt to silence them, I guess, is, is the next best step. Um, but this, this is um, – you know, the Pope, the Patriarch, they have joined the long list of disinformation specialists that are peddling Putin's lies, including the famous American international relations scholar, John Mearsheimer, uh, the father of uh, uh, the containment strategy against the Soviet Union, George Kennan, um, uh, Henry Kissinger, the sitting CIA head of the CIA, William Burns, and, and a long, long list of Western realist geopolitical thinkers, strategists, and politicians, uh, you know, from the U.S., from the U.K., and elsewhere, who have all pointed out that hmm, if you continue to advance. Uh, NATO up to Russia's borders and you attempt to geopolitically flip Ukraine, you will have a war. And here we are. So 
the Pope is is right in line with these dastardly <laughs> conspiracy theorists and peddlers of disinformation. Shame on you, Pope Francis. In terms of uh, here we are, Russia steps up attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure. Russia has intensified missile attacks across Ukraine, striking transport hubs and power stations in the latest sign that the Kremlin may be trying to restrict the flow of weapons and supplies to battlefields in the east. So where are we now, Mark, in terms of strategy and, and, and what's being done and why? Yeah, I, it, it's interesting. Uh, just in the last week, the Center for European Policy Analysis, shall we say no friend to the Kremlin, to put it mildly, uh, put out a report in it uh, noting that the Kremlin, the Russian military is still operating, is still hampered operating under peacetime constraints where they have done the opposite of, say, what the U.S. and, and, and friends did in Iraq with their shock and awe campaign, that they have attempted to limit damage to uh, Ukrainian infrastructure across the country. But that as the war progressive and the amount of Western arms flooding in their tens of billions into the country, that Russia is is forced to try to stop that flow. And one of the things they are doing now is bombing electrical uh, substations for the railways, particularly in Lvov in western Ukraine, which is the primary transit port uh, uh, acro right, right across the border. Uh, from Poland. And uh, these, uh, most of the railways in Ukraine, most of the rail, uh, the trains run on electricity. Um, and by bombing these stations, uh, they, rather than bombing the tracks, what they're doing is simply uh, preventing the electrical juice from getting to the trains, stopping them in their tracks without doing uh, permanent damage to the lines themselves. Uh, we've got a lot of reports on the evacuees from Mario Steel Plant. I, Mark, have personally felt like this, that, you know, when it gets close to – when you start running out of food, you start counting mouths to feed and counting the days. And you know what? If you get rid of some of these civilians, you got a few more days of supplies. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe not. Your thoughts. What's happening with the evacuees, the civilians coming out of the old Azov uh, battalion's uh, hideout? Yeah, we don't know for sure how many people were down there to begin with and how many were left out there, but several hundred uh, were allowed out uh, in the last few days. And a oh, number were they also, of them, all civilians or do, what do we know? Uh, from what we know so far, all civilians. Um, uh, there has not been any word. Russia evidently is checking the evacuees to make sure that there are no fighters. I particularly, they're looking for, well, neo-Nazi tattoos <laughs> uh, on the upper bodies of, of any men who come out. Um, uh, they've long been doing this. This is kind of, uh, you know, disgusted in terrible terms by the West that Russia is filtrating them. Yes. The Russian military is filtering, looking for people with neo-Nazi tattoos. If you have a problem with it, okay. All right. You know, hey, um, I personally, I, I, I don't really have a problem with 
with, you know, people who tattoo themselves as neo-Nazis being acknowledged as as uh, 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 prisoners of war rather than uh, refugees and evacuees escaping out under under false disguises. But it's it's notable that a, a large number these refugees that were allowed out of the Azov stall plant uh, using the humanitarian corridor, some of them went to Ukraine. Uh, to the Kiev regime-controlled territory. Others went to eastern Ukraine, to Russian-controlled territory. Evidently, they were given a choice. And some of the people chose to go one way, and some of the people chose to go the other way, showing clearly that, uh, you know, the divided nature of this conflict and of Ukraine, it's very important always to remember that there are Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict. And there are tens of thousands of East Ukraines uh, fighting alongside Russia against the West-backed regime forces in Kiev, uh, and r- the Ukrainian civilians are divided as well as this clearly shows. What about the intro to this story from the Washington Post? After a three-day-long evacuation from the steelworks under Russian siege, during which Ukrainian soldiers have been staging a dramatic last stand for weeks, with hundreds of civilians also sheltering there. Yeah, I, again, there's a, a, a serious question uh, as to why uh, civilians would choose, if they were free to choose, why to crawl into an underground network of tunnels and Cold War era bunkers underneath a steel factory with uh Azov neo-Nazi death squad. Right? It, it is presumed that some of these were probably family members of Azov and others, presumably the ones that went to Russian controlled territory, uh, were either people that got uh, sucked in there just by you know events during war uh, or might have been forcibly uh, taken in there as human shields by Azov at one point. But as you point out, the um, with, with obvious uh, likely that food and water supplies are running low, uh, they were uh, simply released. And uh, a lot of them are telling their stories on the Russian line um, and uh, they're they're telling of the horrors they have endured while under Azov uh, battalion occupation uh, in Mariupol. This is from TASS. Putin tells Macron Russia is ready to continue dialogue with Kiev. Kremlin president, Rus- uh, Russian president, tells his French counterpart that the EU countries ignore war crimes committed by Ukrainian forces. Uh, your thoughts about Putin saying he's ready to continue dialogue? Yeah, well, I mean, it's nice that he's ready to continue dialogue, but obviously the Ukrainian side says they aren't. They said that there's no further point to negotiations. They are breaking off communic- negotiations and they will only accept Russia's capitulation, uh, which shows that they're truly living in, in la-la land. Meanwhile, the EU has been ignoring the war crimes of uh, the Kiev regime to armed forces, even against Ukrainian citizens for the last eight years. So the fact that they're continuing to do so and now crying about Russia's intervention into the conflict just shows how hypocritic uh, their uh, far moral high, moral high ground is. Mark Schloboda, as always, thank you so much. As the Pope would say, bless you, my son. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here, as always, by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Reuters reports German economic institutes see sharp recession if Russian gas cuts off. Germany would face a sharp recession if gas supplies from Russia are suddenly cut off, the country's leading economic institutes said earlier today. And the government said the war in Ukraine poses substantial risk for Europe's largest economy. How significant of a reality is this, especially being reported by Reuters? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So we've got this uh, reporting of the threat of, in Germany, cut off of gas. We've got a sudden stop in Russian energy supplies and in other countries and an adverse scenario and not the Institute's baseline expectation uh, would slow economic growth to 1.9 percent this year and result in a contraction of 2.2 percent in 2023. What's interesting here to me beyond the numbers, especially when last July, Uh, CNBC reported that Biden and Merkel warned Russia cannot use Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline as a weapon against Ukraine. The question now is, who's using gas as a weapon? Dr. Linwood Tahid. Well, I I, I think if Germany is using gas as a weapon, the the gun is pointed at its own head. Uh, Not only... Uh, our uh, economists, uh, German economists, uh, industrial economists, business economists, uh, agreeing that the, a sharp uh, decrease in, in the import of Russian oil and gas would cause a recession in Germany. Uh, German labor unions are also on that same side. And German labor unions are not like American labor unions. They are significant players. The fact that management and labor are on the same page is makes this makes this a a, a serious analysis. Uh, the fact that go, uh, the German government, uh, you know, seems to be on on the other page, um, brings a question to mind of of why are they doing this? But but I think I have uh, from I do have a, a perspective that says that this is this is all a mirage. Uh, that is uh, that you know the EU is proposing uh, to have an oil embargo against uh, Russian oil, in other words, uh, to to cut itself off from Russian oil. Germany imports about 25% of its oil and gas uh, used in Germany from from Russia. And so a a decline in that um, uh, would would be a significant impact on the German economy, which is the largest economy in, in Europe. And um, Germany, much of the of the, of the oil coming from uh, and gas coming from Russia flows through Germany to the rest of Europe. So I, uh, you know, so so that would that would affect gas and oil going going elsewhere as well. Dr. Tawheed, I'm uh, the way I'm seeing things go right now with the sanctions. 
Um, it appears to me that regardless of what they do with gas, Germany is headed for a severe recession, and which will precipitate significant political and social unrest. They're heading in a bad direction, and it seems to me that um, they, they, they're, they're, they're digging a hole, and they're just they're, they're using a shovel, and right now they've decided to go get a bulldozer. I mean, that's that's what I'm thinking. Your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, it, it, the German the, the German government has is not usually suicidal. Uh, German economists are are pretty good in understanding what their economy uh, is about. They have a, um, a a fairly well controlled, if you will, uh, economy. And so, as I'm trying to understand this, it it seems to me that this might be what we call virtue signaling. That is, Germany uh, and the EU in general is is trying to signal that they're willing, that they're ready to cut off uh, oil from Russia. But in fact, uh, there, there certainly are accounts that it would be actually very easy for the Europeans to say they're cutting off uh, direct purchases of oil from Russia, but to purchase that oil and, and gas through third parties. Uh, a scenario would be this. You, you take a, a, a batch of oil from Russia, and you mix it with a batch of oil from somewhere else so that the, the somewhere else oil is 51% and the Russian oil is 49%. Well, that whole batch is considered to be non-Russian oil. And then if you, if you multiply that, if you take that 100% now, quote, 100% non-Russian oil and mix it with uh, a slightly less amount of Russian oil, uh, then that's con still considered non-Russian oil, even though at that point it would be up to about 75% actually Russian oil. So, so there are workarounds. There are workarounds through third parties uh, that uh, the uh, Europeans could buy oil through other, other channels that was initially coming from Russia. Uh, and uh, what, what happened, of course, because of the intermediaries, the price of oil will go up, but you'll still have oil. So, so, you know, I, I think this may be uh, kind of a political ploy so that the Europeans, particularly the Germans, can say, well, you know, they're conforming to the sanctions, they're agreeing with the Americans, but they have found a way uh, to, to actually get oil uh, into their economy. If that's the case, then uh, the economy will, uh, will, will go on as it, as it is. If that's not the case, then the German government is shooting itself. In, in the head, not not just in the foot, uh, and and that will cause immediate distress, and uh, probably a change of government in, in in Germany and other countries that would would agree to this. And so it, it seems to me that this this can't be the the case that they're they're actually going to, uh, to have an oil embargo. Plus, the oil embargo uh, process uh, in for the EU would require that 100% of the of the uh, countries in the EU agree to this Hungary has already said they're not going to agree so it's kind of like uh you know Joe Biden promising build back better but knowing Joe uh, Joe Manchin is going not going to agree and so you know you can pretend you wanted to do something but you know well we had that that stubborn Hungary that prevented us from doing it there's another element to this uh, on the natural gas side, and I know Poland had said that they were not going to buy natural gas from Russia, and what Poland was doing was buying the Russian gas through Germany, and Russia said, no, we're not going to provide you – know, they, they said to Germany, if you decide that you want to sell gas to Poland, well, we're going to cut back your allotment 
And if you want to sell your gas, fine, but we're not going to give you more than your contractual allotment. Uh, So Russia seems to be prepared for a lot of this and implementing policies that will uh, make it exponentially more difficult for countries to find these workarounds. Yes, I, I think that's the case. And and if that continues on with this uh, supposed EU sanction, which, which again, is not, not probably not going to pass if Hungary doesn't vote for it. But if, if other countries find other ways to uh, to think they'll buy oil uh, in the in the other in the alternative market from Russia, and Russia stops that, then these countries have to they can't uh, go around their own sanctions. They'll have to lift the sanctions. You know the other thing. I mean, you got to think about if I'm playing you, and I know you got four aces in your hand, and I'm just hoping you won't drop that hand. I need to take my money off the table. And right now, here's the truth: while the EU says we may cut get Russian gas and oil and this and that on any given day, the Russians could wake up and say, "You don't have to." We're cutting it off ourselves. You know, granted, they're making money. So look, I mean, as P.T. Barnum said, it's a law. It's a crime against God nature to allow a sucker to keep his money. So sure, they're going to take their money. But at some point, they could get angry and say, you know what? A, you're not getting gas from us. And B, that's non-negotiable. The door slammed shut. You can go back to the Stone Ages. Call us and we'll send you some rocks and clubs or something to, 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 to go find forage for food in the some woods. Flint. Exactly. Some flint and bud as far as what you need from us, you can't get it anymore. They're playing a dangerous game here. Your thoughts? Well, the, the, the idea that uh, you could go back to, let's say, Soviet-era uh, uh, isolation of Russia— uh, when, when Vladimir Putin uh, became the, um, uh, the, the, the premier of, of, uh, of Russia in 1999, he set Russia on a course of self-sufficiency. And so if Russia uh, it were to uh, not be able to sell oil and gas uh, to Europe, uh, there are other customers around the world that are waiting for that, that oil and gas. And the Russian citizens uh, can can bake all the bread and, and uh, build all the houses that they that they want, and so there'll be very very little of a decrease in the quality of life in Russia, uh, but the quality of life decrease in in Europe will be significant. And what the Europeans need to do uh, is to decide whether or not they're going to continue to go go along with the American plan. And, and impoverish themselves and, and uh, create famines and unrest in, in Europe, or whether they're going to try to reach an agreement that, that ends this uh, war in some way so that they can lift the sanctions. Uh, the Europeans are, are in a, between a rock and a hard place, and I don't think the, the false virtue signaling is going to work, uh, so they're going to have to actually work to, to bring peace in, in, into, into that, part, that part of the world, into Ukraine. And, uh, and uh, what, what Putin uh, has, has asked for is a guarantee that Ukraine will not uh, become a member of NATO. I think, I think the Europeans would probably be willing to give that up in order to have peace to, to lift the sanctions. Especially since they've said repeatedly that they were never going to allow Ukraine into NATO because Ukraine is a corrupt state. That was one of the, I, from what I understood, that's one of the primary reasons why allowing Ukraine into NATO has never really been an issue, as, as far as NATO is concerned, as far as I understand. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a scenario that's been pushed by the Americans, and Zelensky, the president of, of Ukraine, is continuing to ask for that to happen, like he's continuing to ask for no-fly zones and other kinds of things that won't happen. 
but but uh, it is a provocation. And like I keep asking Garland to send me a million dollars, and for some reason that, that's not happening. Looking at the, looking at the German economy and what's predicted as a result of the gas issue in Germany, UK shop prices surge at fastest rate in over a decade as households brace for bumpy road ahead. As everything has soared in the UK from energy bills to groceries, and with inflation outpacing the rate at which wages are rising. Experts have been warning that the country is headed for the worst fall in living standards since the 50s. This whole uh, uh, inflation issue coupled by the increase in prices, man, this is a uh, this is a bad scenario for the world. And a lot of this has to do with countries trying to support the United States interventionist and imperialist policies. Yeah, correct. I mean, the UK was already under pressures uh, with Brexit. Uh, that process is falling apart, and I'm, I'm I'm actually amazed that Boris Johnson is is still able to keep his his leadership uh, in in the face of that. This this just adds to that, and 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 uh, the um, the UK is uh, I think the most antagonistic, or or the most vociferous in its support for Ukraine. And uh, and in terms of threatening and threatening Russia, so so you know the UK is going to is going to be uh, get what Europe has has is going to get in terms of inflation and and recession, but also it's going to get its own brand because it had things going on uh, already. And then the the you know the rest of the world, if we're going to bring in, for example, Africa and, and South America. They are looking at at uh, famine uh, because of the uh, lack inability to get uh, grain and other uh, foodstuffs from Russia, and uh, the inability to get fertilizer uh, from Russia, and and they're looking at that, and uh, their decision is whether to to continue to uh, to um, need to trade in dollars, which which is now um, they're not able to do so, or whether or not they'll be able to uh, to trade directly with Russia in their own currencies, which Russia is allowing. And so uh, African countries, South American countries that, that want to trade with Russia can do so without having dollars. They can trade in their, their own currency, but they're going to have to make the decision to do so uh, to avoid uh, starvation in their countries. So hopefully they'll make the right decision as well. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It's reported we now have a Supreme Court in disarray after an extraordinary breach. The leak of a draft majority opinion over a ruling Roe v. Wade raises questions about motives, methods, and whether defections are still possible. How significant is this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's one of the top lawyers in the 
the state of California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrests, illegal searches, racial profiling, and jail abuse. And he has also appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court. Attorney John Burris, as always, welcome back. Well, good. Good to be with you, both of you. Um, challenging times we're in. I guess that's the case. But, <laughs> let me let me let me first say I, I, it's. I think it's important for people to remember with this. We're talking about a draft opinion. We are not talking about a final opinion. It is subject to change, even though that's highly unlikely. John Burris, how significant is this? Well, obviously the um, the leakage is very very significant in the grand scheme of things, but also it means that they were caught. Uh, they were caught uh, early enough so that maybe public opinion, uh, is, if it's outrageous enough and intense enough, may in fact cause one or more of the justices to change their opinion. Not necessarily likely because you make the decision at the time, you know it's going to be a firestorm afterwards. So it just came probably a little earlier than they anticipated and didn't like the manner in which it has come through. But to me, this is a significant, significant uh, even I don't I can't even state how significant it is in terms of the impact it's going to have on, on the lives of, of women uh, and families uh, in the next 50 years, perhaps. I remember I was in law school in 1973 when the decision was made for Roe versus Wade. And the professor, my professor at the time, Evans, Dr. Lawrence, said this was an abomination. He could not understand how this could take place. And he was really talking about how horrible this was. But he was for, uh, the forerunner of what people were going to do and think about that decision then. And it's been a 50-year odyssey since then to over, overtake that decision. And although it has not officially happened, I don't see how it could necessarily change because the three individuals who were placed on this court from the Trump uh, uh, presidency, all three were put there by the Federalist Papers, the Federalist, organization, lawyers, and they would for the express purpose of overturning Roe versus Wade. And if you look back at the decisions that they made and the opinions that they were given at the time of their uh, induction or uh, interviews, each of them said it was settled law. They never said that it could not be reversed because settled law is often and can be reversed. So I think that they told us what they were thinking uh, at the time by the manner in which they answered the questions, we just didn't all of us pick up on what that really meant. So uh, it is not surprising that we're at this point. The thing that most interesting that John Roberts, uh, conservative uh, chief justice, is the one who did not want to do it this way. And he lost his power when Amy, um, the last Supreme Court justice, uh, was selected because then it was five to four. He could make the decision to to alter the, the course of the direction, which he often did. Uh, he was a swing vote on many, many issues. So he doesn't have that power anymore. The conservatives are clearly in control. Uh, and this is led by Clarence Thomas. Alito is a person who was writing this opinion. It looks like well, Clarence Thomas designated him because he was a senior person in the majority. And he could decide who, in fact, would write the opinion. And um, what we get from Alito is really an acerbic type of opinion who was mocking uh, uh, the early decisions, had no respect for the legal analysis that took place to support um, Roe versus Wade. And so now we're in a place where, as they say, we have muscular white men and one woman 
and uh, muscular men and women, I guess, because we have Clarence Thomas there, uh, and that who have made a firm commitment to reverse this decision. And it doesn't matter to me that it was leaked. The leak only means that maybe politicalness uh, will take place and be out, such an outcry that maybe one or more of them would change their opinion. I would not bet on it, though. You said that your uh, constitutional law instructor called the decision an abomination when you were in law school and the decision came down. Was his opinion on that based upon the moral argument or the construction of law argument in the right to privacy not being uh, explicitly stated in the Constitution? I think it was both. Okay. To him, it was a life issue. That the destruction of a human life. He was very, very uh, adamant about that. But then he would say, and he did say, I can see him to this day with his, you know, I had a hearing issue on and shouting out, there's no legal basis for this. There's no right to privacy, as he, as he said at the time. But at the same time, we're going to be killing human beings. And that was his big, big issue on both moral grounds and also on the, on the lack of specificity in the Constitution. Let, let me, if I could just quickly follow up on that killing human beings point, because when I was in law school and we were discussing this, I seem to recall that part of the debate that the court was going through at the time was when does life begin? And they brought in a number of different experts. They brought in clerics. They brought in philosophers. They brought in all kinds of people. And the fact that they weren't able to come to a consensus on when life begins, that that was one of the things that enabled them to hold as they held. Is that right? I think that's correct. Okay. And that is a, that is continually uh, uh, framed the debate. Uh, as we looked at the more recent arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court, there was this whole question about when does life begin? Uh, do you, when does rights attach uh, to uh, sort of a fetus? Uh, and so they ultimately had the question of viability. The last argument before the court out of Mississippi, the question was, should, this, should, should viability attach at 18 weeks? as opposed to the 22 weeks that had previously been done, which ultimately meant no one really knows. And so from a moral point of view, you could say, and which they do say, that it begins at exception. As soon as, as the fertilization takes place, then that's it. And others will say, no, that's not it, because there's no human being there. There's no viability. And, and that certainly has been uh, one of them. Uh, these have been the arguments I think everyone agrees that when you get to the third trimester, of course, that should not happen, that that's way too far, and maybe in some parts of the second trimester. And I think that that's where the court was trying, some members of the court were trying to go. That, okay, we'll back off 22 weeks, 18 weeks maybe, because then there's some evidence that that might, there's some kind of heartbeat of the kind that you can recognize and some shape that might exist. Well, that was where John Roberts wanted to go. But the other court, the other members of that court, the conservative people, said, hell no, we're not going there. We want this to end totally. And, and so that's where we are now. And this is going to be the fight, you know, for the rest of our lives. <laughs> you know, I always remind people that the court is a slow-acting event. That, we, we, you know, we had Dred Scott 50 years from now. We had Plessy versus Ferguson. 50 years from now, we had the Brown versus Board of Education. And now 50 years from Roe versus Wade, we're at another crossroads. So... Politics change things. Uh, presidents matter. I'd always tell people elections matter. 
this is clearly one of those situations where the election mattered more so, and people wanted to give due consideration to it because they didn't think that it would be uh, this, they would be described at this moment. But it has been done. Whether they change or not, I think that's a, that's an open question. I doubt, and, and the other thing is this: look, this is not the end. Okay, let's just keep in mind this is a federal law, right? A federal constitution. Each state can make their own law in regard to this. And we now know that <coughs> some state has trigger uh, um, law. They've been enacted trigger, trigger prevention that if Roe versus Wade becomes obsolete and not the law, then the state constitution, is, uh, the states have already provided that their, that their uh, Roe, quote, Roe versus Wade abortion standards will come into play. So we, oh, next fight is around the various states that exist. And what states, and, and we know that 26 states, I've been told, already have, have laws prepared to go into effect, aside from the ones we know that, that like Texas and Mississippi and Alabama, we're talking about many northern states as well. So what's going to happen is that the north, east, and the, the west, as well as Illinois and maybe Michigan, will have laws that allow for abortion to take place. But many others will not. And so women will have to flood into these states, some with money, most will not, and it will be a financial hardship for many, many people um, in the future. The other thing that I think about, you know, in 2009 when Obama came into office, I was doing a radio show, and one of the things that I talked about was a list of things. You have a filibuster-proof majority, and Roe v. Wade was one of them, and Taft-Hartley, I mean, I could go on and on, and there was a list of things that, you know, we talked about that should be done. None of them were touched. This was a gigantic opportunity that was missed, and while this could be addressed, uh, you know, uh, by Congress. From the looks of things in November, Congress is going to go in far the opposite re- direction. And I just, I guess, well, let me ask you this. A, what could Congress do theoretically to address it? And what are your thoughts on my still fury over missing that opportunity? Well, Congress obviously could pa- pass a federal law making it abortions uh, legal uh, under federal law. They could do that. But unfortunately, uh, they don't have the votes to do it because the Congress has already passed a bill. But the Senate has not. And the Senate may have they have maybe two Republicans, uh, the, uh, the lady from Alaska and the lady the senator from uh, uh, Maine, Maine. Mm-hmm. who basically support um, the abortion. But that that would get them to 52 if they had all the other 50. They don't have all the other 50. And as a consequence of that, they would have to have a filibuster, even if they got, they have to do away with the filibuster, which they cannot do. Uh, they don't have the votes, and, and, and some of the, of the the Democratic people, like um, one from um, West Virginia and Arkansas, Arkansas have not uh, um, from Arizona, Arizona yeah. not vote against eliminating uh, the filibuster. So again, it's a dead end street. The irony of all of this is that when the Republicans get in. They very well may eliminate the filibuster in order to make sure that there's no federal law uh, that can that they will get in, uh, get in, uh, enacted. So it, it just you got to keep in mind that voting is what matters here, and they don't have the votes. Now they said politically, Democrats have what we'd like to do is make everybody for political purposes vote. That is a yay or nay on this question, so that they can use that as a political um, tool. When, they, when the campaign starts. Well, that may or may not be an effective way of doing it because there are a lot of people. I mean, there's still 
a huge population base out there who believes uh, in the uh, in the anti-abortion rule. So I don't know if you get that much benefit from that, but but the Democrats didn't think they might. In fact, to that point, as we wrap up on the political issue, Democrats are now pleading for action to codify uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, you've got Bernie Sanders in the Senate. Uh, you've got uh, AOC in the House. But I see that the Democrats really, uh, by not having been on the front end of this argument, they're now trying to make hay on the back end as this has pretty much fallen into their lap. And uh, I, I think, you know, there are those on the political side that are now moving to the Democratic position. But, again, they didn't champion this on the front end. They're now trying to seize it on the back end. We got about— Well, I thought that's totally true, because I think they did pass uh, some legislation on this a while back. It's just that they couldn't move it in the Senate. So it's been languishing in the Senate. But they had the Congress had already passed a sort of um, trying to pass a law to make it a federal right uh, to pass to have an abortion. What I really meant by that was they this has not been an issue that they have been articulating on the stump that they haven't been championing this publicly. That was my point. Yeah, I think that's correct. And, and the part of the reason being is that I don't think anyone thought that it would come down this quickly. Although the last argument that the Mississippi case, when Mississippi changed its position from wanting to have 15 weeks instead of, uh, and, and then say, we'll just eliminate the entire um, Roe versus Wade. I don't, it didn't appear that most people thought that would happen. Although the signal was really there. And I think the signal was there when in Texas, they decided to allow the Texas law to come into that these bounty hunters, uh, when they could have easily stopped it then. Right. But they were really, we're not going to allow any more abortions, period, uh, in this particular state. And this is just the first step in us uh, making this a, a federal decision mm-hmm. around John Burris, as always, we know you squeezed us in on this one. We really, really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Good to hear from you guys. Thanks, John. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Alleged Russian cyber threats fueled nearly 2 million warrantless FBI searches of Americans' data in 2021. In total, the FBI ran 3.3 million warrantless data searches in 2021. How concerned should Americans be about Fourth Amendment violations? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a web developer and technologist, Chris Garafa. As always, Chris, welcome back. Oh, as always, great to be back on with you both. Thank you so much. So the Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause. Uh, How concerned, Chris, should people be about these reportings, warrantless searches 
of Americans' data by the FBI. We should always be concerned about this kind of misuse of power, and frankly, it's abuse of power. Um, This is all happening under Section 702 uh, of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, and that law kind of amended the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act from 1978 and gives permission to certain government agencies to uh, collect and establish, to collect our our, communi- our online communications and our conversations and all of those kind of things. Um, it is, when it's used by the NSA, the CIA, it's not supposed to be used on Americans. But we know that in this interconnected world, uh, even a, a, a Skype conversation you're having or an email you send may travel outside of the U.S. and back in, even if you're having it with somebody just down the street. It's just how, you know, the Internet and, and all of that works. The FBI also has a history of abusing its 702 powers and of getting tips from the NSA based on 702 searches and then opening their own internal FBI investigations into uh, American citizens based on the results of the tips and the information from the NSA. So it becomes this kind of roundabout way of the FBI using Section 702 content in order to do its own investigations. Now, of course, the FBI is the only one that's supposed to be, uh, you know, legally spying on people in the U.S. But I think even in the reporting of this, what, what isn't getting promoted heavily enough is that they're getting a lot of this information from the NSA itself which we know has been spying on Americans. Of course, the Edward Snowden revelations gave that, but so many other programs throughout the NSA's history have, have shown time and time again that that's the case. You know, one of the things I find interesting in researching this a bit is that the FBI would justify these things saying, you know, we've got outside interference, you know, we've got Russia or whatever country is attacking us, and so therefore we have to do it because there's a foreign country. One of the things that we look at is there is the revil or R-E-V-I-L was a, a hacking group. And so they said, OK, we've got to we've got to do investigations because of this Russian hacking group and we can use that for the for the warrantless searches. But when you look into it, it wasn't a government hacking group. And in fact, the Russian government took it took took it down and charged the people because it was just an independent hacking group. So it seems to me that in they took advantage in any instance they can to justify the use of these warrant serv- you know these warrantless searches in, in 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 many instances apparently where the justification wasn't there. Right, if we remember, I mean for years now it's been Russian hackers, right? And the implication is always that they are backed by and guided by the Russian government, which you know, for Revil and for so many others, just isn't true. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, any government on the planet doesn't have offensive and defensive cyber technologies and securities and groups, right? It would be ridiculous not to at this point. But these worst, the worst of the worst here, Revil, Lapsus, and others are not government-related entities. They're just reported in a way that leads you to assume that they are, right? It, it's kind of a a truth by um, or a lie by omission because all the framing really makes you think that it's, you know, a government entity or government sponsored group. So, yeah, I mean, the other thing to note is that nothing came out of any of these investigations. There weren't charges. There weren't, uh, you know, any legal cases filed. 
Nothing came out of it. That's the same excuse the NSA gave or the same reason they gave when they uh, stopped the phone metadata program. They said it's too expensive and we haven't gotten enough of value out of it. So, again, we're seeing here the FBI isn't actually getting any kind of actionable intelligence from any of these spy programs, Um, but they continue to run them. They continue to fund them uh, and they continue to push for more and more surveillance powers. And to that point, FBI investing heavily in social media tracking, quote unquote, predictive surveillance software raises civil liberties concerns. A recent contract between the FBI and Babel X software firm is raising some privacy and mass surveillance concerns. The software is used for keyword-based social media tracking and advertises a predictive analytics feature. Talk about this predictive analytics because it sounds an awful lot like profiling. Uh, Yeah, very similar. Very similar. What these packages do, and in this particular situation, it's from a company called Babel Street, and they've purchased 5,000 licenses of their product, Babel X. So what this firm does is they create all sorts of social media monitoring and analysis tools, and Babel X is just one of them. Another is Babel Synthesis, and they have a whole suite of tools that do this. And they sell to, to government entities and private corporations alike. Yeah, so just looking at some of the the features of, let's just take Babel X, because that's the one in this story, they can look at who are the influencers in a network of people. Um, Who are you, based on your social media activity, influencing, and what's your reach, and who are you being influenced by, and what is their reach? They they are really proud, Babel Street, to show this kind of information, too. And they, um, back a couple years ago, I discovered a new product of theirs that hadn't been released called Babel Synthesis. And they showed, and this was just after the uprising in uh, 2020, um, you know, the uprising against racism across the country. And they showed in their examples mappings of supposed anarchist or Antifa groups um, and, the, and the journalists who followed them on Twitter. Like, ridiculous to see how they're doing this, right? So the other thing is that they're going to start using this profiling to say who is likely to take action because of some social media post and their social media history, who is likely to become an influencer, who is likely to, um, you know, engage in some sort of, you know, online or in-person activism or action. This is something that they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that we very much live online. We have this amazing social tool, the internet, and we share our thoughts and our feelings and how angry we are or happy or whatever it is about current events. And we often do that without thinking about who's watching. We think it's just our, you know, thousand followers on Twitter, but instead it's, you know, our thousand followers on Twitter, every advertiser out there, the U.S. government and companies like Babel Street that are picking this stuff up. Another thing I think that's concerning is they do this bulk surveillance where they're actually looking at people's emojis to try to find out the state of mind to see who's dangerous. You know, when I was in law enforcement, I remember taking these um, courses, I was in investigations, these courses on body language. But they said the thing you have to keep in mind is a person could be crossing their arms and crossing their legs because they have something to hide. It could be because they're 
shy, or it could be because it's cold in the room and their arms and legs are cold. So these bulk surveillance of emojis are about as worthless, and they bring it out uh, in, this, uh, in, in these articles, they're about as worthless as, you know, astrology or somebody's energy points or something like that. When you use bulk surveillance, you can't take anything to, into account, and uh, it's very dangerous. Anyway, your thoughts? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm glad you, you shared that experience from your own time in law enforcement. Um, there's been a move with companies, just, you know, you know, companies trying to do advertising and customer service and stuff like that to try to figure out uh, sentiment analysis. Is the person happy when they're tweeting about us or are they angry at us? And it doesn't work that well. You have to take into consideration languages, cultural differences, sarcasm, which is extremely hard to figure out online in text unless you're, you know the person or you, know, you get the context of the comment. So doing those kind of things could set off red flags, right? In with law enforcement, with whoever's using this software and point to somebody who has done absolutely nothing or even some Somebody who is just venting, somebody who's just really angry and says a dumb thing that they probably shouldn't have said, but had no intention of actually, you know, doing anything. Um, and we should all be aware of what we're posting, but it happens. We all, in moments of frustration, just say the wrong thing. Um, just try not to post it on, tw- on Twitter or Facebook, frankly. But that could, you know, that could just get a person in some serious, serious trouble based on, you know, one or two tweets or some combination of things that they're the software finds that really isn't out of the ordinary or has nothing to do with anything but the software flags it for some reason and that's another issue just in general with machine learning is we have so little insight into how these algorithms work and what it is that they take as uh, signals and how how they value those signals and weigh them when trying to make an outcome or a decision or recommendation alan mcleod has a piece in mint press entitled the NATO to TikTok pipeline. Why is TikTok employing so many national security agents? Alan McLeod says the TikTok has taken steps to align itself with U.S. government policy, deleting more than 320,000 Russian accounts and removing at least 41,000 videos peddling misinformation about the war. It has placed warning labels. Uh, talk about TikTok and uh, its alignment with government interests. Yeah, this is such an interesting report from Alan McLeod, and I'm so glad that we're talking about it because the the last time TikTok was huge news, it was because it's this scary Chinese-owned company that's stealing all of your American data and sending it over to the you know to the Communist Party, and I'm like. Why do they care what cat video I'm watching five times on repeat? But that's, you know, what we were supposed to be thinking, right? That's the media wanted us to be scared of. So instead, we're seeing TikTok and we're seeing it hire people and hire so many people who are coming out of the U.S. government, out of the military, um, out of NATO itself. I mean, just, uh, you know, for some examples, they have former employees from psychological operations at NATO who are now feature policy managers. That's uh, Greg Anderson um, there. They have people who are military intelligence officers uh, and, and many, many others. And this is not unique either to, uh, to TikTok. This is happening at Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, um, and all of the big social media companies. 
I want to mention as well, because it was in the news briefly at the beginning of the, the conflict with Ukraine, that we should also remember the U.S. government invited a, uh, a number of big TikTok influencers to come to the White House or to do you know virtual briefings, however they wanted, and to actually get a briefing about Ukraine just because they were uh, influential and had a lot of followers on TikTok. So the U.S. government is really seeing, on the one hand, that they need to use this platform um, just as they use the regular media, because the regular media is just losing favor with people. And at the same time, TikTok as a company is moving to, you know, get in line to do what it has to do to sustain itself as a, you know, as a business in the U.S. Um, to, you know, now that they're able to stay alive, basically after the threats from Trump have, you know, had dissipated to shut them down entirely, now that they're able to stay alive, uh, they're really doing the same thing that all of the other big tech companies do in the U.S., which is, you know, cozy up to the government uh, and build the connections that hiring high-level employees gets you. Chris Garafa, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. All right, thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Electronic Intifada has a great piece entitled International Justice for Ukraine but Not Palestine. International law is held up as a yardstick by which to judge the conduct of all states and non-state actors equally. But the disparity between North Atlantic countries' opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the one hand and their support of Israel's decade-long violent rule over Palestinians on the other suggests instead that the yardstick of international law is a weapon wielded to uphold imperialism. I don't know the truer words have ever been spoken. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Great to be with you guys. Palestinians have called for a single standard of justice long before the state of Israel was even declared on the ruins of depopulated Palestinian cities, towns, and villages. You know, Laith, at the end of the day, all folks really want is consistency. The Palestinian Center for Human Rights, quote, the standard for justice must be one for all peoples of the world. However, that standard is once again proving to be a matter ruled by interests in which politics trump international law, which is in turn used by politicians as a ploy to serve their purposes. Again, Laith, no truer words have ever been spoken. Yeah, and I mean, this story is uh, amazing to see how the International uh, Criminal Court is uh, rushing to uh, investigate, quote-unquote, war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine um, and going on the ground in the Ukraines and and following the positions um, taken by NATO countries like the UK and the United States. While at the same time, we know 
of course, that uh, Trump sanctioned the International Criminal Court and uh, sanctioned its uh, uh, the previous uh, chief prosecutor, um, and you know threatened and passed a law in the in the Congress in the United States that if the ICC ends up charging any Americans or Israelis for war crimes that uh, they can invade the Hague and to arrest basically the workers at the ICC and free any Americans or Israelis that were held under under those charges of war crimes. So to see how this new uh, prosecutor uh, at the ICC is rushing to uh, follow the dictates of the West on this file while refusing to move on the files of Palestine. Um, and of course, uh, anybody that comes from the south of this globe, from specifically Africa, knows that uh, up until now, these supposed international uh, unbiased tribunals like the ICC and the IJC um, uh, have only prosecuted uh, African leaders as war criminals. Uh, none of the colonial leaders that are still alive and or American leaders that caused all these wars around the world have ever been charged. Therefore, we know international justice, quote unquote, is uh, in, an imperialist tool right now. You know, I think that this, um, one of the things that has happened as a result of the Ukraine crisis, this is just another thing to demonstrate what people in the Middle East and Africa, et cetera, already knew, and that is that this whole rules-based order that Tony Blinken talks about, a rules-based international order, is really utilizing Western control tools like the ICC to maintain hegemony, and that these tools are only used against the adversaries or, or designated adversaries of the U.S. empire, which, you know, when it comes to stealing resources are almost always communities and countries of color. And that, unfortunately for the Ukrainians, this time they may not be a country of color, but there is a strategic interest for the U.S. empire. But at any rate, this thing has demonstrated so clearly what a lot of people in countries that have been oppressed by the empire already knew. Your thoughts? Yes, yes. And and you, when we talk about international law, this is the, the issue. This is a, you know, set of laws that came in into effect after World War II, where, you know, the Geneva Convention, what we consider to be the codes of human rights internationally. And uh, the, these new codes of laws that came as an effect of World War II, the Nazis and the, and the Holocaust, were immediately denied in the creation of the Zionist colony, in the French, British uh, and, and American uh, fight against any country that wanted to decolonize and come out of the colonial rule of uh, Western states after the end of World War II. So uh, from the offset, the uh, all the mechanisms that were created uh, to end uh, war internationally after World War II, uh, the United Nations, this International Court, the Criminal Court, the International Ju Court of Justice, the uh, and what have you, all all of this, these codes were in the end immediately uh, shown to be uh, just ink on paper and never given those rights to anybody outside what we know as the uh, Western world. And uh, here we are, uh, you know, 60, 70 years, uh, 70, almost 80 years after that. And we see this, these codes 
um, coming uh, to a test meeting moment. Either we throw all of this and rewrite the code or the West has to be forced to abide by the same code that everybody else is is being enforced on. Palestinians are calling for a single standard of justice, which is has been consistent for years. Are you seeing a a different resonance now than you've experienced and seen in the past? Yeah, I mean, I I'm very hopeful right now because I feel we are at a stage where. Uh, we could see a resurgence of the south to south or east to east exchange of uh, liberation uh, movements and, and collaboration. And, um, you know, there was this generation right after the end of World War II that lasted at the, till the end of the 70s uh, th- that struggled for uh, liberation against imperialism and then was defeated. And then we had this dark ages for 30 years right now with much of that not in existence. And what we see today beyond the a beautiful uh, rise of a new multipolar world is that this multipolar world will not only be a northern controlled uh, a polarity. There will be multiple poles coming out from Africa and Asia and Latin America that will balance humanity and uh, move it away from being uh, Eurocentric for the last 600 years. There's a report out of Press TV, prospects of Iran's Saudi detente, um, promising signs and f- amid fading U.S. sway in region. One of the things I always recall is the Iranians basically after the death of uh, General Soleimani said, we're going to run the U.S. out of this region. They didn't say they were going to use military force, but it appears that whatever the case may be, the, U- the U.S. is ex- uh, exiting the region. What are your thoughts about the prospects for Iran's Saudi de- de- detente and especially Especially the fact that it's in, that it's on press uh, TV site. Yeah, I mean, the Iranians really want to uh, minimize any war in the region. And they uh, they are not looking out to take over the region, even if the United States withdraws, as is happening. But uh, they are wanting to concentrate on sovereignty for all the peoples in the region. And therefore, they continue to reapproach the Saudis. Now, I uh, clearly, as you noted, having this information on the official website of a government uh, news agency like the Press TV means that the uh, government itself is investing a lot and wants this to happen. But does that mean that the Saudis will actually deliver on this? Are they capable of uh, breaking themselves away from American dependency, even if they have a fight with uh, the Biden administration as the Saud family? I don't know. Those those are uh, really hard things to imagine. It's, uh, you know, a hundred and somewhat years of uh, the Saud family uh, being in bed with the with the Western elite. And uh, it's like uh, asking a dog to stop to wag his dog, his tail. One of the things that I find interesting in this press TV story, uh, they quote Kissinger, and and Kissinger said, a country that demands moral perfection in its foreign policy will achieve neither perfection nor security. A lot of times what people like Kissinger will do is they will use an absurd claim to validate an absurd position. Nobody has been calling for moral perfection in U.S. policy, 
but we'd at least like to see a moral basis of the policy. And unfortunately, imperialism and hegemony and militarism, morality does not make. Leif Marouf. Yes, and uh, of course, you know, a broken clock is uh, right twice, know, right at least once you know, a day, right? <laughs> so this is the the fact is that uh, you know he is a war criminal. He is a, a person who uh, you know caused so much death across the world, and uh, he he he's never thought of morality as a guiding for his for the foreign policy that he was responsible for. So no, um, we shouldn't be taking our lessons from uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, of course, we all have to be realistic when we are talking about international relations. Uh, we, we, there's no absolutes. Uh, it's like, you know, we, we can all be supportive of, let's say, uh, Russian uh, actions uh, against the NATO and imperialism. But that doesn't mean, let's say, I get to be blind about what um, the Russian position in Syria or what does that mean? You ha we have to always realistically uh, analyze all these uh, states and their actions in a rational way uh, to sh that uh, is based on their interests and what that means to their future and survival. One of the things I find interesting is they, they basically say that if this is true, if this is going to work out, if they're going to have some kind of a deal, it says the Persian Gulf Arab states led by Riyadh, if, it me if true, it means that they've finally awoken to the reality that Washington has been the major impediment to regional security, stability, and prosperity, and that in consequence, positive relations with Iran, Lebanon, and Syria are non-negotiable position, condition of the same. And I get that too. I think that it's possible that some of the Gulf Arab states who have been, you know, bending over, bending a knee to the empire may be waking up to the reality that the empire is not acting in their best interest and that if they want stability as opposed to domination is there is in their best interest. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I really wish for the best in these negotiations, it's exactly like I wish for the best with the negotiations around the nuclear deal. But at the same time, you, you notice how uh, the reason that the Saudis are doing this and or the Americans are continuing with the negotiations over the nuclear deal with Iran is because they are they, they don't know what to do. They've reached the end of uh, their ability to dictate the directions of actions on the ground. And therefore, they are trying to, on the one hand, mitigate damage uh, as the, the inevitable uh, retreat of the United States happens for it to be able to concentrate on wars with China and Russia. And uh, how, do, how do they balance that with maintaining the existence of absolute uh, monarchies in the Gulf that, uh, that are oppressive of their populations if there is no American um, uh, military and empire behind it to keep it in existence? So I don't know. I, I feel that we, all of these things will come to a head before any fruition of uh, actual deals uh, that may de-escalate the situation. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, man, we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. PayPal has begun quietly shuttering left-wing media accounts. Several independent news outlets and journalists have already had their PayPal accounts canceled at the last minute and their funds frozen by the company for unspecified offenses in the last few days. As we've been talking about, these publications also occurred to have differed from official orthodoxy on the Ukraine war in significant ways. Since the Russian intervention, the West has implemented a succession of harsh wartime-like information control procedures. And for insight into this, because some of this tide seems to be shifting. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist and a writer at Consortium News. I'm sorry, he's a reader at Consortium News, uh, and he writes at the polemicist.net, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. As always, thanks for having me. So we had you on uh, earlier to talk about the piece that you wrote in support of Consortium News, and now some of the tide has turned. Well, uh a little bit, yeah. It seems that uh, Joe Lawyer published a piece today saying that the consult- uh, PayPal seems to have backed off a little bit. They're now saying they're not going to seize his funds. Uh, it's not going to be it. They're not now talking about a permanent shutdown, which we're talking about, uh, permanent limitation. So, But they also have not released it yet. He can't do business yet. They're saying he's got a satisfy a couple of things, but they haven't told them what they what that is. One of the weirdest things about all of this that they never tell you what, you know, they say, well, you've, you've breached our terms of agreement or you've done something that causes, in the case of a uh, consortium news, uh, risk of harm or something, you know, but they never specify what that is and you can't really get them to do that. So uh, again, he's still waiting for, you know, what is it that I have to do to get my money back and to get and to be able to do business? It's not normal. You know, banks don't take your money because you didn't have the right opinion about Ukraine. And this is exactly what's going on here. And PayPal, you know, wouldn't be doing this across the board in this kind of way if it hadn't been really egged on or threatened in some way by, I think, a government agency. You know, we've got this kind of things coming together here. We've got this government disinformation or disinformation governance board. We have this happening with um, with with uh, uh, Consortium News. And let's not forget, you know, Caleb Maupin and others who have been um, treated this way. And I haven't heard anything about Caleb yet being um, restored. And I kind of feel like this has something to do with the factors on the ground in Ukraine, quite frankly. I feel like the government's been saying Russia's going to lose, Russia's going to lose, Russia's going to lose. And it seems like in the Donbass region right now, Scott Ritter and others who had said, look, this is coming to a close in that area and it will have a dramatic effect on the on the war that they're looking at, that they're feeling kind of desperate. And that's what's really horrifying, that you can connect rightly or wrongly the factors on the ground in the war in Ukraine directly to the media activities and the anti-media activities, shall we say, which is pretty frightening. Your thoughts, Jim? Yeah, well, as I said in my article, this is. Clearly, you'd be a fool not to see that there's some coordination here. The, you know, it happens when the congressional delegation, that, you know, the week after Blinken and Austin go to Kiev, what, the day after practically the, conve- the congressional delegation headed by Pelosi and Adam Schiff goes to Kiev and announces we're in it, in it to win it. 
We're going to stay with you until you have victory over the Russians. These are the words they're using. And then there's a, you know, immediately thereafter, there's a campaign to PayPal to seize these accounts of people like Consortium News, as you said, Mint Press News, Caleb Mopin, uh, Alan McLeod, who said, I haven't used PayPal since last Christmas when I bought a Christmas present. And they're con- con- accusing him of doing something harmful. He hasn't done anything on the account. So this has clearly been promoted by uh, being pushed and coordinated with the government imposition of wartime programs of military, military programs and wartime censorship. And it is happening in a situation where they're announcing they're going for victory and going out to win. You know, I have a friend, who, uh, a good source, who told me that in Washington, Fiona Hill is telling people Putin has lost. The Chinese are going to come in. They were so annoyed by him talking about nuclear weapons. The Chinese are going to come in and step in and force Putin to pull back. They believe that? Do they believe that? I mean, this is crazy. So they, they, there's a, they, she heard that at, uh, in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, let, let me read. <laughs> let me read something to you real quick, Jim. These are the words of Joe Biden. He was talking to the president of Afghanistan. And he said, things aren't going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there's a need, whether it is true or not, there is a need to project a different picture, Biden told President Ghani. Let's not forget, that's the president of, of, of Afghanistan, who, when he left, had $160 million in cash in a bunch of um, suitcases. suitcases, which if you're a puppet running a country for the government, that's kind of what you're eventually going to do anyway. It always ends up that way. But my point is, uh, what's his name in Haiti? Yeah, then you get a whole different treatment. But my point being, my point, Jim, being what you just said, they They don't care. They will absolutely lie. The Taliban was coming across the border, overrunning the uh, Afghan government at every point. And Biden says, whatever you do, don't let anybody know this. We got to lie. So uh, sadly and horrifyingly, this is kind of par for the course for these people, Jim. Yeah, but that's why they have to control the media. You know, they have to not let, have to restrict the flow of information and analysis which presents another narrative and which disrupts this narrative, which is delusional uh, at at certain level. Uh, But they got to kind of be allowed to believe it themselves to a certain point. And this is the real danger in the sense in which, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and and, uh, Fiona Hill and uh, the neocons believe that they're they're defeating the Russians and they just need a few more weapons. And uh, this is something which I don't know what to say about it, but it's extremely, extremely dangerous. And it's what they want they want to control the projection of the narrative and they're going to sh- now shut down as many people as they can in, in in many ways as they can by shutting off funding etc to make sure the narrative doesn't get disrupted and i think it's important for people that are listening to this conversation to understand that there's a much much broader historical context uh, in the United States for this action, because when you look at the history of the Sedition Act and the other types of legislation that have been implemented to control speech in this country, it tends to center around a time of war. It tends to center around a concern by the United States that, or those uh, in power in the United States, that the United States is going to lose the war, and that in order for the United States interests to be protected, you can, the country cannot tolerate dissension in its media. So 
we are th- this, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, as Mark Twain said, but it rhymes. And so uh, you can look at the end of uh, the you can look at World War One. You can look at World War Two. And as the United States gains more confidence, then it tends to back off of prosecuting and persecuting people for sedition and other types of action. But when the United States fear is at its height, the government's going to clamp down, and that's what that's where we are right now. This is an indication to me, Jim, that as Bi- as a as Garland just read from Joe Biden saying. The United States is scared as hell. Oh, yeah, the real risk here, they, there is a risk. There is a risk because the narrative is so bad. Their version of events, you know, is, is easy to refute. And so they don't want it out there. And what they've done is, you know, it, it's the case that if you're in a war, there's going to be information controls. Right? Whether we like it or not, that's going to happen. And the United States is now taking the position that it's in the war, but it's doing that kind of without explicitly trying to say that, and, and but it's imposing all the controls that one would control. You know, I don't expect Zelensky or Putin to do anything else but have some control of information. They're in a war. But we're not in a war with Ukraine. We're not in a war with Russia. I don't want to be in a war with Russia. And the American people really have no reason to want to be in a war with Russia over Ukraine. They don't really have the slightest clue about the recent history of Ukraine over the past eight years, let alone the past 30. So... And, you know, they, 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 they don't have the dog in that fight. They really don't. But they've got to be persuaded that they do. And they've got to be persuaded that we can get in that war and we can win it easily you know, without being blown up here, without crap being – we can blow up a lot of crap over there, but they're not going to come back and blow us up. That is not the case if we get into a war with Russia. And this is what the United States wants to do. They explicitly say it. We're in this war to weaken Russia. We're fighting Russia over there, so we won't have to fight them over here. This is something we don't need. We don't want. American people don't need it, don't want it, but you got to persuade them. Oh, we're already in it. It's for freedom and democracy. And look, we can win easily because they're already losing. There's another interesting article, um, The Non-Independence of Western-Funded Independent Media in Ukraine. It's um, in Mint Press News. And what it basically talks about, and it's part of this, the fraud that they argue that there's, in quote, independent media. They attack actual independent media, and then they set up these astroturfed CIA, uh, USAID-funded so-called, you know, Kiev independent journalists, and they're a bunch of NATO think tank, Atlantic Council, U.S. Embassy, CFR people. Your thoughts on that, um, uh, uh, Jim? Yeah, that's Alan McLeod, who, who was shut down by uh, PayPal after he wrote even though we hadn't used PayPal for over a year, after he wrote an article about no-fly intellect, no-fly information zone over Ukraine, about the censorship of information about Ukraine. And he's given this story about now how the uh, supposedly independent media in, in Kiev is really not independent. It's, it's been set up and financed by the American and NATO money. And, you know, we, we have this, we just had a Media Freedom Day. We had the White House Correspondents' Dinner when Trevor Noah gave this big speech about how wonderful it was that we here in the United States, I can criticize the president of the United States. You know, nobody mentions Julian Assange. Nobody mentions what's going on here. The, 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 journalists in Ukraine have been threatened and killed by the fascists in Ukraine. Zelensky shut down all of the left wing, all of the media channels, except the right wing media channels in Ukraine. This is not press freedom or independent. You know, there's a, there, there's a tight control of the media atmosphere in Ukraine. And a lot of the money for it we see now comes from American and NATO sources in order to this. And their purpose is 
to attack Russia ultimately. And we know this. This is what's been going on with the expansion of NATO. And Russia has a good, good, reasonable, uh, good reason to be to say, look, this is a using Ukraine as a spear against us. So you know, this is information war. This is, uh, and it's being funded out of American and NATO money. You know, a Reuters story that came out today that contradicts the United States narrative. In its German economic institutes see sharp recession if Russia gas cut off. And Garland and I were talking about this story, and I said, beyond the truth in the story, the fact that Reuters is reporting a story that is contradicting the United States narrative on sanctions, to me, is telling that this crack in the media willingness to go along with the BS narrative, the crack is getting wider. Yeah, well, the sanctions issue is, of course, and, and, and it, 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 I think we should understand what's happening with PayPal and things like that as the sanctions coming home to roost in the United States is exactly what it is, sanctioning Americans in American through American financial institutions for activity in America and for expressing things in America, but they're bringing the sanctions home. But the, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of... Reuters reporting this story is, yeah. to, is, to me, very, very telling beyond the headline of the story. The fact that Reuters is reporting it, to me, speaks volumes. Yeah, well, the European press is going to be uh, more aware of this than we are. They can't avoid it. They can't ignore it. The head of Bosch, one of the biggest conglomerates in Germany, has said this is going to destroy us. You know, it, clearly there's a selectivity here. The, the Americans are not going to uh, uh, sanction all the uh, uh, oligarchs that the, that the Europeans are. I saw a thing the other day. Of all the Russian energy that's provided to the American bases in Europe. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff here about the sanctions that's baloney and they know it. And it's going to really hurt the, 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 the uh, European economies. And they can't. Ignore that entirely. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune reports U.S. no longer refers to Guaido as interim president. This past Monday, the United States Secretary of State, Blinken, stated via his Twitter account that he spoke with former Deputy Juan Guaido and reiterated the U.S. regime's support for the Venezuelan people's fight for democracy. In this case, a euphemism for the overthrow of the elected president, Nicolas Maduro. Notably, Blinken did not refer to the former Deputy Guaido by the title of interim president, as Trump's administration habitually did. 
Not that the world needs another example of U.S. hypocrisy, but just in case Biden's statements about democracy in Ukraine are not sufficient, Blinken will always step in and fill the void. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He was the regional election observer last year for the Venezuelan elections, co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela, and president of the Hands Off Venezuela Club at the University of North Florida, Alex Suarez. As always, Alex, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So Blinken writes, I spoke with Juan Guaido to reiterate U.S. support for the Venezuelan people as they seek to restore freedom, democracy, and prosperity to their country. We remain committed to the success of Venezuelan-led negotiations as the best path for a peaceful return to democracy. Uh Alex, I would call this the return to where you've always been. Uh, return, peaceful return to democracy. Uh, it, Jimmy Carter said most democratic elections he's ever observed. Uh, freedom. Last I checked, the Venezuelan people are very happy and very free and support prosperity to their country, as I understand the numbers. They would they would the uh, the uh, d- the economy grew at something like twenty percent. That's a projection for this year. Yeah, a, a twenty per- The United States wishes it had five percent growth. Well, Jimmy Carter, just to elaborate, also had said that it's only the United States could have an electoral system as good as Venezuela's. So th- this is this is what we're talking about here. Guaido is a former assemblyman, voted out of his own party what, like two years ago, never ran for president prior to 2019 when they recognized him. Um, hardly anybody in Venezuela heard of him, let alone abroad. Um, and now for the first time, and pro- and then Guaido's not protesting this. See, Guaido will protest certain things the United States does, right? Like he complained on Twitter when the United States recently was negotiating the purchase of oil with Maduro. He said, how could you do that? I'm the president. Now, Blinken is, is coming out, and for the first time, they're not referring to him as interim president, and Guaido's responding, by, but not complaining about that anymore, because obviously he's been talked to. Well, and it just shows he's doing what a good puppet does. When he's told to jump, he jumps, and when, it, when his strings are yanked, he jumps around. And I think it, when I look at this, it also shows that, I mean, Juan Guaido was always like the Easter Bunny, really. He was always a fake, a fraud, you know, and so they just— You mean the Easter Bunny that's ordering, uh, that's ordering Biden around now? Yeah, exactly. They ran up behind and startled Joe Biden. So we, be, we better keep—if he's the Easter Bunny, we better keep him away from Joe Biden because it'll scare the bejesus out of him. But at any rate, um, it th- doesn't this demonstrate the absurdity? A lot of things are going on right now, but this is one of many things I think that's going on to, dis- to, to demonstrate the— per- preposterous nature of U.S. foreign policy, where Juan Guaido's been the president. They literally brought him into, like, the State of the Union, introduced him as president. They all clapped. And now— Including Pelosi. Pelosi, uh, the Democrats, were one of the ones giving him a standing ovation for their puppet. Yes. So what do you think this shows about U.S. foreign policy, and in particular in South America and Latin America? Uh, Well, first off, what I don't understand is why isn't uh, Ambassador Alex Saab being released right now then? Because that's the only legal justification that they've given in court for saying he's not a real diplomat, that, that they still recognize Guaido. They've really lost their last excuse, haven't they? Right? Because, you know, the Georgia courts just recently 
said, okay, we can't say whether he's a diplomat. We're going to leave it up to Miami now. Um, and, you know, I'm writing a book about this, by the way, exposing uh, the Alex Saab case. It's called The Diplomat, and hopefully it will be out later this year. But, um, yeah, they've lost their last legal justification. You know, I was president of the hearing uh, for, for Alex Saab in, in D.C., and um, it's justification they gave they gave back in 2020 also. Uh, you remember Garland with the actions at the Venezuelan embassy in D.C.? When they're going after the, the last four, they said, well, we had a right to invade that embassy because it wasn't the real government. It's Guaido. They can't say that anymore now, can they? Well, Guaido responded with the following tweet to Blinken. I spoke with Secretary of State Blinken about the importance of international support to confront Maduro in authoritarian regimes. We Venezuelans resist a dictatorship and fight to achieve free and fair elections. The support of the free world is key to achieving them. Who is the we in the we Venezuelans resist a dictatorship? And, of course, we know that the word authoritarian is now the the word du jour because it it, it personalizes uh, the attack. But anyway, who it, 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 who is the we that Guaido is speaking to? Um, Guaido probably relies a lot on Colombian um, uh, bodyguards. Um, because there is, is no really Venezuelan national that exists now that would stand by him. None. He was voted out of his party already almost two years ago. Um, his own party doesn't want him. They consider him a traitor. Um, nobody wants him. So really, the only people that are around him now are probably CIA assets that are Colombians that protect him because whenever he shows himself in public, he needs to be heavily protected so there's not stones thrown at him. That's what he means by we. Another article, Nicaragua's government expelled the U.S.-dominated Organization of American States and expropriated its office building where it will now create a public, quote, museum of shame to educate visitors about imperialist imperialist crimes committed against Latin America. Your thoughts? That's fitting, isn't it? That the OAS, uh, who Che called back in the 60s, the Ministry of Colonies, right, to maintain uh, U.S. imperialism. Um, But now that they're thrown out of Nicaragua, that they're going to replace it with the museum showing the imperial crimes. I think that's very fitting. Now, it's also very interesting. Popular Resistance has a piece. U.S. coup specialist Victoria Nuland visits Brazil. With an election six months away, which promises to be far from business as usual, the notorious U.S. official Victoria Nuland's arrival in Brazil has aroused understandable suspicion. The U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs arrived in Brazil for a meeting with young entrepreneurs from Brazil and high-level Brazil-United States of America dialogue. Uh, How concerned are you, Alex? How concerned should we all be? Because usually Victoria Nuland's appearance uh, proceeds a coup. Yeah, just like in 2014 in Ukraine. Um, I think it's important in October when they have the presidential elections in Brazil that it's heavily supervised internationally. I intend to go down for that. I met several Brazilian comrades when I was in Venezuela. But yes, it needs to be supervised. We need to make sure that Bolsonaro doesn't do any of his old tricks, especially with U.S. backing with people like Newland. I also think that this is very, very, very much related to what's going on with Bolsonaro in Ukraine, because both the, the Brazil is part of BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And they have refused to go along with the sanctions. They've said they're still, we need, you know, basically what they've said is we need a lot of stuff, particularly fertilizer, and they're going to continue to buy stuff from Russia. And do you think this could 
also be part of Victoria Nuland being concerned and ab- about the neocons being cer- concerned about Brazil yeah. looking out for their own country's interest when it comes to the commodities and the things that they need from Russia and not going along with the U- U.S. empire's uh, Ukrainian strategy. I'll put it this way, Garland. Uh, Bolsonaro fears one man more than any other person in Brazil right now, and that is Lula. So probably Lula is going to use the threat of Lula to get him behind uh, the sanctions against Russia and be like, hey, if you don't want us to meddle for you and get and get Lula out of here again, uh, then you better go, uh, you know, and follow what we're doing here. Plus, they have a spoiler. I think they have a third party guy. I don't remember his name. Um, They might try to back him to get votes away from Bolsonaro, but I don't see Lula selling out at all. If Lula takes over, he's going to maintain the position because he was president when Brazil was first part of BRICS. So they would still maintain good relations with Russia. What do you know about any of the groups that Victoria Nuland is meeting with in Brazil? What do you know about their their backing, uh, their ideology? Are these uh, CIA front operations claimed to be supporting democracy? But we know that that's the least of their involvements. I would look at that third party guy more. What people are calling the spoiler. I need to look into that more. But I'll put it this way. Um, Duque was more than willing to use Colombian land uh, for a potential land invasion of Venezuela by the United States. Bolsonaro said no, because even though Bolsonaro's far right and has worked with Trump and and the Americans, um, he's a nationalist as well, a real nationalist. I'm not talking like a Ukrainian nationalist. So he's a nationalist in the sense where because of his sovereignty, he doesn't want his land used to invade another country, even if he's hostile to them diplomatically. Um, so because he hasn't gone along with the U.S. on certain things, uh, it's possible, I don't know for a fact, uh, that Newland could be looking at this third-party guy being in there. The United States has unilaterally decided to exclude Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua from the upcoming Ninth Summit of, of the Americas. Um, the summit brings together the leaders of the countries of North, South, and Central America, as well as the Caribbean, under the auspices of the OAS. Um, your thoughts on what this means? Repeat it again, has to do with Nicaragua. The U.S. has has decided to exclude Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua from the upcoming Ninth Summit of the Americas. Oh, the Summit of the Americas. Okay, yes, I did hear about that. And I think other Latin American nations in solidarity should refuse to uh, join, uh, uh, refuse to be present as a result. So we'll see what the reaction to that is. What does it say uh, in in the broader context as uh, President Biden has been talking about democracy and been talking about the United States supporting and uh, encouraging uh, democracy and then wants to exclude Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua from this summit. In fact, I want to say that it was the Nicaraguan election that Biden said, yes, it was free and fair. We don't like who won, and we're basically just going to ignore it. Not only that, they used as a justification new sanctions in Nicaragua that Trump didn't have uh, as a result of those elections. And those elections were just before I went to Venezuela. I met with several observers that were there to observe the legitimacy of those elections as well. But yeah, now the United States is not even being hypocritical on it. They're saying, yes, you know, Ortega was voted legitimately. We don't like that, so we need to sanction them. And, you know, it's it's like, what was the other day, World Free, uh, Free Press Day, uh, that you had the U.S. host uh, some event? And it's like, what about Assange, right? I mean, these are the hypocrisy. These are the times that we're living in of, of hypocrisy, right? And so it's the equivalent of saying, you know, we're for free, uh, you know, 
free speech in the press while they're going after journalists like Assange uh, for the act of journalism, literally, if you read the charges. Um, and, you know, now they're talking about democracy when, you know, world opinion recently said that the United States is the biggest preventer of democracy in the world. I remember they had world opinion polls on the U.S. being the number one um, threat to world peace. But now the world considers the truth, right, that the, the, is, that the United States is the biggest preventer of democracy. That's really when the United States wants the medal is to prevent democracy, to get a hold of those natural resources when a leader tries to come in to use the natural resources to help their own people, especially in the global south. Alex Suarez, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Blinken to unveil Biden's China strategy. The policy is expected to be molded on the Trump administration's previous policy. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America. America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So Blinken is set to make a, a long-awaited speech outlining the administration's China strategy. He's going to do this this coming Thursday at GW University. Sources tell Politico that Blinken is not expected to say anything surprising and that the strategy will be mostly molded on the China policy that Biden inherited from the Trump administration. I'd like for you to speak to that last point, inherited from the Trump administration, because we know about the shift towards China and what that statement in terms of inherited from Trump tells me Contrary to what a lot of people believe, that policy is shaped by administration and the personality of the president, that there are many things here that are American foreign policy, irrespective of who the president is. Sure. Well, uh, the Trump administration was full of anti-China fanatics. Uh, Most famous in particular was Peter Navarro, uh, who's kind of a, a crackpot economist who's made his career attacking China. Um, you know, and then he's just, you know, he's run for office and he's just written books and made documentaries and he's just kind of a professional, professional anti-China agitator. Um, you know, he's made a career basically demonizing China and using his academic uh, credentials to do so. Um, but it appears that, uh, that while there are some differences among the elite when it comes to dealing with Russia and China, at the end of the day, they can't stand both of them. I mean, both of them used to be poor countries. Both of them pulled themselves up and, you know, set up, uh, set up uh, planned economies uh, that ultimately raised millions of people out of poverty. And both of them, over the course of the 20th century, went from being impoverished countries to being major competitors with the United States on the global stage. Uh, now, it happens to be that China is a competitor with the United States in terms of uh, industrial technology, in terms of, uh, you know, cell phone manufacturing, in terms of steel. 
uh, whereas Russia is a competitor with the United States in terms of energy, oil and natural gas. So, you know, on the one hand, you can have, you know, oil companies that say, hey, we can make money selling oil to China. Um, and on the other hand, uh, you can have uh, in the United States, you can have industrial companies that say our focus should be on opposing China because they're our major competitor. You know, they're making cell phones better than Apple's iPhones are. Uh, you know, they're making uh, steel and they're producing copper and they're putting us out of business and in, in supplying the world market with a lot of industrial goods. Um, so there can be a difference of, of short-term desire. Do we go after Russia first or do we go after China first? But at the end of the day, um, you know, the goal of, of the monopolists that dominate the Pentagon uh, is to put all independent countries out of business and to have American corporations that dominate the world. So that's going to put them at odds with both Russia and China. So the fact that the Trump administration's policies, which seem to target China in terms of a trade war, that uh, they would continue under Anthony Blinken and under the Biden administration. That's not particularly shocking, um, and it makes sense. Uh, what's interesting is I think in the lead-up to this, there has been a huge amount of effort to court China as an ally against Russia, uh, and China has refused, uh, you know, those efforts by the United States. China's made clear, uh, you know, while they're not, you know, they're not like sending troops to Ukraine, and the, you know that they're they're not going to turn against Russia. They're not going to condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine. Um, and because of that, uh, the United States is going to continue the hostile policies of the Trump administration. You know, I also think if I could get you to comment on this, um, Caleb, that this is another demonstration of how much the the U.S. ruling elite has totally decoupled from the working class. You know, we've get, we're getting numbers 650, somewhere between 650,000 and a million homeless people in America. We've got an economy that's contracting and heading um, for recession, inflation, struggles for the average American citizen. And the only thing that our, the leaders of our country are focusing on right now is competition with Russia and China to the risk of all humanity to maintain a hegemonic um, uh, a world order that has already fallen into multi multipolarity. Caleb? Sure. Well, the majority of the profits that American corporations make at this point don't come from the United States. You know, they talk about imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, where you have these capitalists that are not just capitalists, they're what you'd call monopolists. And they sit at the center of huge trusts, cartels, and syndicates, these huge multinational operations that span all the way across the globe. Um, and they're not just raking in profits like a normal capitalist. They're raking in super profits. Um, and in order to maintain their super profits, uh, you know, they're more interested in the international scene and maintaining the dominance of their cartels, trusts and syndicates and uh, the United States economically around the world than they are about maintaining the domestic economy of the United States. Right. That, uh, you know, you know, I mean, McDonald's is all over the planet. Uh, these big oil companies dominate the oil markets all over the planet. Um, and so when there's an economic crisis on the horizon, they're thinking about how can we maintain this huge global apparatus. Uh, they're not necessarily thinking about how can we make the domestic economy of the United States better. And I think that, you know, some of the rhetoric we heard from the Trump side of things, from the right, where they talk about globalists, et cetera, um, that was a confused way of kind of articulating this, that, uh, that there are there are a lot of money interests in the United States uh, that have more of an international perspective and aren't really particularly concerned about the domestic affairs in the United States in the way that others might be. You were talking about China and you were talking about Russia and how the United States views them in the competitive context. One thing you didn't mention in terms of Russia 
is, am I overstating it to say that from a foreign policy perspective, one of the issues the United States has had with Russia is Russia's anti-imperialist inclinations, particularly as it relates to conflicts with countries in, uh, on the continent of Africa? Sure. And I mean, it's, it's very basically a fact that, you know, that China is doing a lot to bring development to African countries in terms of building power plants, in terms of building roads. Uh, in terms of providing access to medical care. And, and Russia is involved in that as well, the Eurasian Economic Union and the work that they are doing. I mean, when I was at the Yalta Economic Forum, uh, I saw the leaders of many African countries getting up and talking about their longstanding relationship with Russia, how Russia has, has stood with them and helped them. And, you know, I mean, I, the fact that Russia's state-run um, energy companies are helping helping African countries to develop their own state-run energy companies. Uh, that's happening, right? And the natural gas is a big deal in Africa, just like on every continent. And, and that Russia has this huge, you know, state-run natural gas company, Gazprom. And Gazprom goes to African countries and, and has a partnership where they will help these countries, you know, develop their own, their own natural gas industry. Um, and they'll help them, you know, use technology. And yes, it's to the benefit of Russia, but it's also to the benefit of this country. I mean, they're building up this country, having its own domestic uh, natural gas uh, company. And but- it's worth noting that part of the reason that Isabel Dos Santos, uh, who was the, uh, the, the leader of the, uh, the, you know, the economy of Angola, uh, part of the reason she was removed is that she wouldn't hand over the natural gas resources to American companies. She wanted to maintain state ownership of natural gas. But go on, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to throw in that, that Russia has also been involved in some of the freedom struggles with some of the African countries. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. When the Soviet Union existed, I mean, there's a really, a really great book uh, called The Hot Cold War, the USSR in Southern Africa. And it shows the huge amount of, of money and resources that, that the Soviet Union put into supporting the people of South Africa, the people of Zimbabwe, the people of Namibia, uh, the people of Angola. I mean, I mean, the role of the Soviet Union in Southern Africa, which which was not completely visible. It wasn't like, you know, they were they were on TV. You know, they, they weren't sending troops. It was kind of covert. But I mean, you know, there, I mean, the, the rise of the ANC, the overturning of apartheid in South Africa, uh, the overthrow of Rhodesia, the, the apartheid state and the, the rise of Zimbabwe. Um, you know, Angola's national liberation struggle. The Soviet Union was very heavily involved in that. And those relationships, even though the Soviet Union is no longer in existence, uh, those relationships still exist. And there are there is quite a bit of economic uh, connection uh, still between Russia and, and many countries throughout Africa, but most especially in southern Africa, where these these intense conflicts, uh, you know, were, were going on in, in the 70s and 80s that ultimately led to the overturning of these apartheid states. Addressing Parliament on Friday, Solomon's Islands Prime Minister Manasa Sogavari pointed out that his country had never been consulted about the AUKUS, AUKUS alliance. We did not become theatrical or hysterical about the implications this would have for us, he said in pointed remarks. We respected Australia's decision. The Solomon's Island is upset because the United States has drawn a red line 7,391 miles from the closest U.S. Uh, uh, continental shores of, uh, of Solomon's Island, the U.S. has ruled that the Solomon's Island is in the sphere of influence of the U.S. and has implied that they're ready to take military action should China establish a military base. Your thoughts, Caleb Maupin? Well, again, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, the Solomon Islands are a lot closer to China than they are to the United States. And I mean, this is a sovereign country. They want to make a decision. The United States has so many military bases very close to China. You don't see China establishing a red line. So, 
it's particularly ridiculous. You know, I mean, I think it's up to the Solomon Islands. If they want to, you know, have a military base there for China, they can. If they don't, they don't. I mean, let's, let's talk about the numbers. China at this point has one overseas military base. It's in Djibouti. Uh, and they're talking about make, maybe making another one on the Solomon Islands. They've at this point got one. Uh, Russia's got eight overseas military bases. The United States has well over 800. So, I mean, this, this demand, the, the way the United States is talking right now is particularly ridiculous, I think. The way the United States is talking is, is ridiculous, but we know that war has been created over less. So how concerned are you that the United States, particularly as it engages with its conversations with South Korea, as it engages with its conversations with Japan, as it engages with its conversations uh, with Australia, that it's fanning the flames of conflict over this issue. Well, you have to ask, like, what is Biden trying to accomplish here? I mean, the war in Europe has already had a catastrophic effect on the global economy. The prices of energy are through the roof. There's going to be a global grain crisis. So, I mean, is it in his interest as a president uh, to just stoke things up with China as well? But, but uh, wait, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me jump in and ask you this. Going back to my earlier question about the consistency of policy despite administration, is this Biden driving the policy or is this elites or the representatives of the elites like Blinken that are in his ear telling him what to do? Well, look, I think that we can be sure of one thing is that in Blinken's speech, we're going to hear all the same talking points about China. We're going to hear about Uyghurs. Uh, we're going to hear about human rights. We're going to hear about Taiwan. We're going to hear all the same talking points. My question is, what will what action will Biden take? Like, how much is he going to escalate things with China? Um, you know, because at this point, you know, his administration has a lot of they're at the point where they have a lot of explaining to do, I guess, around around the global crisis. Now, you know, I mean, you know, so I mean, if, if they're going to take any dramatic action with China after already taking so much dramatic action with Russia, you know, I mean, the implications um could not be good. And I feel like, yeah, the, the, the overall script is going to stay the same because this is the interest of American corporations, the military industrial complex, et cetera. Uh, the overall script may stay the same, but I'm, I'm curious, will there be a full on escalation with China? Because I feel like the Biden administration at this point is trying to is scrambling to pick up the pieces from a, you know, a full on confrontation with Russia. And, um, you know, I, 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 I just don't know if they would really really like to see the results of what could happen with a full escalation with China as well. I also think that one of the big things they're going to do now is money, money, money. They're going to say we've got to pump tons of money into the Indo-Pacific region. And so there's going to be that $813 billion is not going to be en enough. They're going to have to add lots more. So part of it is going to be another part of the big scam money grab for the military industrial complex. We got about a minute. Oh, you can be sure of that. And I mean, I mean, that there's nothing, nothing different about that. That started with Obama with what they call the Asian pivot. And if you look at the reports that are coming out from the Stockholm Institute for Peace Research, uh, you know, I mean, it's I mean, money, money going into the military industrial complex and weapons manufacturers is through the roof. I mean, this is a great time to be a merchant of death, as they say. Kayla Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. And as always, man, we look forward to having you back. Sure thing.
Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 